0: We're going to be in Exodus 34. I'm going to invite Spencer to come on up and read. i um, grateful for this brother. And Chad, actually, is going to be preaching this morning. So uh, Chad, for those of you who don't know, he is a dear friend of mine, as well as a pastoral intern. He is our life group leader, which is which has been an absolute joy. So I'm excited for Chad to bring God's Word to God's people here this morning. So if you will, will you please stand as we show reverence to God's Word as Spencer reads it.
1: Exodus, chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I'll write on the tablets of stone the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took his, in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and stead- gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, and visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go up in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not been created, not, have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day, and behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, and lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods, and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods you shall make for yourself you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread 7 days you shall eat unleavened bread as i command you in the time appointed in the month of bib for in the month of bib you shall come out you came out of egypt And all that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, all the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it you shall break its neck. All the firstborns of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in the year you shall make your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your border. And no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. And you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifices with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil the young goat in its mother's milk." And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He ate neither bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the people of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when the Lord had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. When Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to up to speak with him.
0: Hey. Lord thank you so much for this day it's a beautiful day that you've made help us rejoice and be glad in it God your name is great and glorious you are great and glorious Lord I have just been in awe of who you are this week and what you've done for us Uh, I love you and we your people love you and we are humbled in worship and adoration at who you are And for what you've done for us despite our sin we praise you for the gospel of our lord jesus christ lord i pray you would protect our hearts and our minds from lethargic apprehensions of who you are how holy and good and great and gracious you are and how sinful we as your people can be and yet You have made Yourself known to us, Lord. We can know You. We know Your name. We trust that You will glorify Your name in and through us. We acknowledge that You have glorified Your name in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I worship You through this sermon. And I pray that You would allow Your people to worship You through the hearing of this sermon. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. (laughs) Thanks, yeah. Uh, Already getting emotional, haven't even started. They must love the pastoral intern here. Um, I always get the really cool passages to preach. I'm always saying if I just tell you a little bit about this, it's going to seem like a good sermon even if it's not because this, God's Word is so good and so amazing and I have been just living in it all week as all the pastors do when they're preparing a sermon. Um, So uh, yeah, I'm going to let it rip this morning I think. A name, Uh, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Does anyone recognize that? What's it from? Romeo and Juliet. I didn't know that. I remember that quote. I had to look it up. It was Romeo and Juliet. That's why Audrey made me wear pink this morning, I guess. Juliet says that in the play, Romeo and Juliet. She's lamenting. She's in love with Romeo, but she's not allowed to be because he's a Montague and she's a Capulet. And the families have a blood feud. And she says, basically, Romeo, his last name Montague, is meaningless. If we called a rose by another name, it would still smell sweet. A name is totally meaningless to Juliet. And yeah, in the context for her, maybe that's true, but should we get our theology of names, especially God's name, from Romeo and Juliet? Or should we get it from God and His Word? There's a lot to a name, you guys. Honestly, I didn't really think about this until I became a dad. Audrey and I were about to name our son, Zeke, uh, Tristan. Really liked that name. Not going to lie, really liked this movie called Legends of the Fall with Brad Pitt. Everyone loves that movie, right? And he's this really cool character, but it's like the saddest movie you've ever seen in your life. And the wisdom of my dad one time said, hey, you might want to look up what the name Tristan means. Because if it's anything like the character in that movie, you might not like the meaning. And I had never thought of the meaning of a name, so we looked it up. And the name Tristan means man of continual sorrows. And we thought, well, maybe we won't name him that. Now, I I got scared about introing like that, because if there's anyone in here named Tristan, I'm not trying to hate on your name. That's a cool name, and I'm not saying that there's like some inescapable destiny that you are stuck to in your name. But I was thankful that my dad said that, so then my brother and I are doing a Bible study and we're reading Ezekiel and it means God strengthens and we're like, we love that. Let's name him Zeke. My name means warrior. Chad, our names mean warrior. David means beloved. Lydia, providential, you sat in the front row. Your name means beautiful or noble one. And your name means favor or grace. There's a lot to a name. There's a lot to God's name. Names can and do have meaning. They are more than just a word. They're more than just a few letters that we put together that help us differentiate ourselves from other people. They are that, but they can be so much more, especially when we read God's name this morning. When God speaks His name, He's telling us so much more than just how to get His attention. Name means so much more. Think about it in a contemporary setting. A lot of times we say, that person is trying to make a name for themselves. What are we saying? We're not saying their parents didn't give them a name when they were born and they're trying to give, you know, what letters are going to sound good? and D. Okay, now I've made a name for myself. No, when we say that person is trying to make a name for themselves, we're saying that person is trying to become famous world-renowned, acknowledged, and maybe even adored. They want to be known for their talents. They want to be known for their character. With talent, I think of athletes. That's how I used to live my life. I was trying to create a name for myself. You think of musicians. For politicians, usually it's more of their character. That person has made a name for themselves, and we can mean that in a good or a bad way. We know that person as a person of integrity, or we know that person as as a person who does not have integrity. When a human does this, when a human tries to make a name for themselves, it's what the King James translation calls vainglorious. We should not live to make a name for ourselves. It's vanity. It's vainglorious. When God lives to make a name for Himself, it's called righteousness. It's called goodness. It's called justice. It's called love. God glorifies Himself through the speaking of His name in Exodus 34. God glorifies Himself in and through His people. He's trying to show His character to the world in and through His people. And God glorifies Himself in the new covenant. That's what we're going to see this morning in Exodus 34. It's split into three paragraphs, so there's going to be three points to this sermon. His name, His people, and His new covenant. But before we dive in, a quick thing is context. Context is so important for this sermon and for any sermon. I'm going to say something really profound. Exodus 34 comes after Exodus 32 and 33. Wow, they're teaching the intern a lot here, right? (laughs) Context is really, really important. Exodus 32, that was preached a few weeks ago. Easter split us up. So I just want to remind you, this is an amazing passage. Remember the weight that we should have all felt when we read Exodus 32. God has just saved Israel out of Egypt. He's he's done wonders. He sent plagues. He had them cross the Red Sea. He created a people, and they worship a golden calf. A few days later, a few months later, they are worshiping a golden calf. And so, some questions we might have as we come to Exodus 34 is, is God going to be gracious? Is he going to show mercy? Moses even broke the Ten Commandments. Is God going to renew the Ten Commandments or is he just going to crush them all? In Exodus 33, we read that God said, I'm not going to go with you guys. I'm going to send an angel, but I'm not going to go because you're a stiff necked people. And do you remember in Exodus 33 when the people heard this disastrous word? They were terrified. They panicked. God, is it not your going with us that makes us distinct? Please go with us. Also, from Exodus 33, Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And so the question as we come to Exodus 34 is, is God going to do that for Moses? So now we get into Exodus 34. Before God says His name, God shows His character. God kind of foreshadows what He's going to do. He tells Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. Which you broke. Kind of comedic, right? When I read, when I read that, I laugh. It's like God's going to give grace, but He's also going to hold him accountable. Remember, you broke these. Imagine... God being your accountability partner. How you doing this week? Oh, you know, I'm okay. I got really mad. Broke the, broke the Ten Commandments that you wrote on. Yeah, I know. I, I'm, I know. I'm omniscient. Sorry. The reality is he is our accountability partner. He knows we can and should confess all of our sins to him. He gives grace, but he holds us accountable. That's kind of funny, which you broke. He tells Moses to be ready by the morning. Come up, And no one is to come with you. A reminder of God's holiness. He's only allowing His mediator to go up. No one else can come up. No animals. Nothing near the mountain. Just Moses. So Moses obeys. And not only does he obey, I like that it says he goes up early in the morning. God says be ready in the morning. Doesn't necessarily give him a certain time. And Moses says, Lord, I'm going to be punctual in my obedience. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to get the tablets, cut them, and I'm going to come see you. He goes up. God descends. God descends. You guys, God descends and stands near Moses. The glory of God is seen by the Word of God being heard. Moses sees too. We don't know exactly what he sees. God says, I'm going to put my hand over you. You can't see my face, but you're going to see my back like Aaron said it's it's an anthropomorphism trying to help us understand God but i think primarily the way Moses sees God's glory is by hearing God's name through his word so then God speaks his name verses 6 and 7 you guys i feel to be honest inadequate to talk about this we all are i'm going to do my best and we're going to take these in pairs this is one of the most famous passages In all the Bible, one of the clearest pictures of who God is, and as the Old Testament talks about God and who He is, we see reflections of this all over. All over the Bible after this, we see God is described as a God of steadfast love, a God of mercy and grace, all throughout the Psalms and Numbers, everywhere. God starts by saying, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord there is translated in all capitals, showing us the Hebrew word is Yahweh, His divine name, Y-H-W-H. It's known as the Tetragrammaton. Yahweh, Yahweh, which is related to the Hebrew word to be. God is saying, I am, I am. This is the same name He revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He wants to remind us that He is the self-existent One. God is the only One in all the universe that doesn't depend on anything for existence. He exists in and of Himself. Everything else in all creation is dependent on God. All of creation and us. In Him we live and move and have our being. God is self-existent. He is. He will be who He will be. Next, This is amazing. After He says His name, you guys, He says He is merciful and gracious. God is merciful and gracious. We read that, and we have a hard time believing that, don't we? Dane Ortlund in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says a lot of us read it like this. The Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. The Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking. The Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. Many of us have a wrong view of God. That so much of the Christian life is letting God tell us who He is in His Word. And letting our assumptions of Him be challenged. Challenged. Many of us believe and live like His main disposition towards us is disappointment. That's an unfortunate view of God to believe He's primarily disappointed in you. And me and my life group would tell you that that's rooted in our performance. We're talking about that. If you feel like you're not performing well enough in the Christian life, then you, your view of God is probably that He's disappointed in you. The Gospel has freed us from performance. God can't love us any more or any less when we are in Christ. Our obedience to Him does not earn us righteousness. Jesus Christ has earned us righteousness and given it to us. God is not disappointed in us when we're in Christ. He is merciful and gracious. The two first most important things, it seems, that He wants us to know after He says His name. Merciful. Merciful and gracious next it says he's slow to anger this is a fun one the hebrew translation is he's long of nostrils he's long nostriled. what does that mean it takes a long time for the stench of sin to move god to judgment hear that it takes a long time for the stench of sin to move him to judgment that's not saying he's unaware of sin he's omniscient he's he's always aware of every little sin in our hearts and every big sin that happens in a dark room that no one else sees. He smells the stink of that sin all day, every day. Psalm Psalm seven, eleven. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. So long of nostril doesn't mean he doesn't know about it. He's, it takes him a while to move in anger and judgment towards it. We think that God is quick to anger and judgment. Again, we have a wrong view of God. He is not quick to anger and judgment. We have to remember that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish. Another cool insight from Dane Ortland, he says, when we compare God with us, God has to be provoked to anger. It takes a long time. It takes provoking. Whereas sinful humans, sinful fallen humans, we have to be provoked to love. All over the Bible, we're told be stirred up to love. Be provoked to love. Our default isn't love, but God's default is. Next it says... He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hased. You've heard this before probably. This is the picture of God's special covenant commitment to His people. The love that He has for His people is steadfast. It is faithful and always faithful. This is amazing again when you compare the holy God to fallen humans. The love that God's people sometimes offer Him is stingy. It's superficial. It's selfish. I'll do this for you, God, only if You do this for me. It shows our love is about us. And yet, God is a God of steadfast love and always faithful, even when we are faithless. Don't forget, though, it also says He's abounding. God God does not have a small amount of steadfast love and faithfulness. You guys, He's abounding in it. It's overflowing. It's it's coming out of His heart like a river. God, like one cult believes, is not only going to save 144,000 people. What a small view of the abounding steadfast love and faithfulness of God. God will save a great Multitude, a myriad of myriads of people, countless from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. I can't move on anymore without asking you guys an application to our prayer lives. Is that how we pray? Would our prayer life be modeled by a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? Is that how you pray? Let's be honest. Is that how you pray for the person in your life who you think is unsavable? They just have too much pride. They're just too opposed to it. Well, God has news for us this morning, you guys. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It overflows out of Him. Think about your own story. What God did to draw you to Himself. What God did to draw the Apostle Paul to Himself. If God can save the Apostle Paul, He can save any of us, because He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. It goes on to describe that more. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. Another translation, if you read the ESV, there's a little footnote that says, to the thousandth generation. I think this is a comparison with what we're going to see at the end of his name, he Visits iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. God shows steadfast love and mercy to the thousandth generation. It's overflowing and it's never ending. And I think the culmination of all these characteristics is there halfway through verse 7 forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. How has God done that? We get to read Exodus 34 in light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of the name of God. Colossians 1.5 He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough. And what does Jesus say? If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. Of course, Exodus 34 gives us a true and glorious and right picture of God. But we see this more fully, more deeply, in three dimensions. We're better able to understand who God is as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we read of King Jesus who embodies the name of God finally don't think I skipped over the hard part God will judge he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation that can be confusing upon a first reading or if you're a new Christian in here even if you're a seasoned Christian. Wait, doesn't Ezekiel eighteen twenty say children will not pay for the sins of their fathers? And fathers will not pay for the sins of their children? As we read the Bible and grow in our understanding of theology and what would be called biblical anthropology, our belief about man, we know that it's that's not what it's saying. We don't pay for the sins of our parents. Parents don't pay for the sins of their children. The point is that Every father and mother passed down a genetic disease, and it's called sin. The, the genetic disease of sin from my dad and mom was passed to me, and we were born guilty. My dad and mom were born guilty, and I was born guilty. We're not born with a blank slate. We're born in sin. Our nature is sin. We are spiritually dead, and that's the disease that's been passed to us. This is obvious, I'll say it anyway. Even Christian parents pass down a sin nature to their kids. What's unique about the Christian parents though is hopefully what, another thing they're passing down is belief in God. A, a teaching of our children, you are a sinner and you need a Savior. Unbelieving parents not only pass down a sin nature, they pass down unbelief. And God visits that on them, and He visits that on their children. But I have a question for you. If, if we're going to do some congregational participation, if there are any of you in here. Would any of you in here be willing to raise your hand if you're a Christian? Thanks, Beck. Hold on. Let me finish. If you're a Christian in here, and your parents weren't practicing Christians, and maybe even your grandparents weren't practicing Christians, you raise your hand. What a testimony of God's grace. Everyone in here is a trophy of God's grace. But he visited the iniquity of your parents only to the third and the fourth generation. Then he said, "You, you're mine." And for now for a thousand generations he's going to show steadfast love and mercy to you. God, think about what God had to do providentially to draw you to himself because you weren't born in a Christian home. He had to bring a friend to you who would love you enough to tell you about your sin. He had to draw you to a college ministry where you would hear the Gospel. Praise Him for His grace. And now you get to pass down belief to your children and pray that your children and your children's children will pass down belief in this great and glorious God. God is good, isn't He? I've just been overwhelmed this week. I'm overwhelmed this morning. That's His name. He reveals His glory through His name to Moses through His Word. And then we read of Moses' reaction. What does Moses do? Verse 8. He bows his head and worships. A right reaction for all of us. The right response to hearing the glory of God through His name. We should all do that. In fact, that's why we pray at the end of every sermon, not because it's a convenient way to conclude a sermon. It is a good way to conclude a sermon, but mostly because as the pastor has stayed faithful to the text, as the young intern, I'm just always praying, Lord, don't let me say any heresy, keep me faithful to your word. The response of even the preacher and all of us should be to bow our heads in worship, and that's why we pray at the end of a sermon. That's why we will pray at the end of this sermon. Because we, as we see and hear of this great and glorious God, what other response would there be, you guys, except to say, God, you're holy and I love you. And bow your head. But Moses goes on. He doesn't stop there. As part of his worship, he says, Lord, if I found favor in your sight, please go with us. Please go with us. He's begging. Could you imagine God saying, I'm not going to go with you? Could you imagine if somewhere in the word it said, I'm just, at some point, even if you're in Christ, I'm going to decide not to go with you. What a disastrous word that would be. Moses is begging him, I know in Exodus 33, you said you're not going to go with us, but please go with us. And then Moses acknowledges his sin and the sin of the people. He says, You know what? We are a stiff necked people. God had said it like six times in chapter 33. Now Moses acknowledges it. And he says, And pardon. Pardon, Lord, our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. That sounds like a response to the Gospel, if you ask me. God reveals His holiness, His goodness, that He will judge. And what does Moses do? I'm a sinner. I live in the midst of a sinful people, like Isaiah says when he sees God's glory. I need, we need, your pardoning and your sin. Please take us to be your inheritance. In other words, Moses is saying, Confirm, Lord, that we are Your people. You will take us to be Yours, and therefore, You will go with us despite our sin. Remember, we're coming off of Exodus 32. Despite our sin, Lord, we need You. We need Your pardoning, and we need You to go with us. So that's the name of God. That's Moses' reaction. We move to number two. God reveals His glory in and through His people. This is uh, verses 10 through 28. Excuse me. This will be the shortest point this morning. These are repetitions of commands given earlier. So if you want a, a deeper treatment, you can see our previous sermons. You can go to the Crossings website and see where the other pastors preached on these commandments from previous verses. I'm going to stay at a 30,000 foot view. First, we look at verse 10. God responds to what Moses has said the first half of verse 10. He says, Behold, I am making a covenant. We can read over that quickly. It could have said, you are making a covenant with me, or we are making a covenant. But God says, I am making a covenant. The initiation is on God. If Aaron Santini has taught me anything, it has been that in all of our theology, we have to start with God and work our way down to see how God gets to men. Anytime we start with men and we we think of men first and how they get up to God, our theology usually goes off. God says, I am making a covenant. I'm going to be the one faithful in this covenant. I will see it through to completion. I am making a covenant. The rest of verse 10, he says, Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Basically, God is saying, I am going to make a name for Myself through you, through this covenant. God's purpose in this covenant, in the new covenant that we are a part of, is to glorify Himself in and through His covenant people. And God's people, our role in in their covenant with Him and our role with Him is to love and obey God and to reflect His holy character. Many of you know the word holy means to be set apart, to be different, to be utterly unique. God is holy, set apart, different, unique, and so His people are to be as well. We read this all over the Bible. I am holy, therefore you be holy, God says to his people. So, this is what God is doing by giving these commands. He's setting his people apart. So, in verses 11 through 17, we have some don'ts, mostly just one big don't. And then, verses 18 through 26, we have some do's. Again, we're going to stay at 30,000 feet. In verses 11-17, through 17, we, we heard Spencer read it. God says, I'm going to give you this promised land, or he said it earlier, I'm going, to, I'm going to drive out these other nations and give you the land. And what are they not to do? They're not to make a covenant with these people. Why are, are they not to make a covenant with these people? You can see it in, at the end of verse 12. They will be a snare in your midst. In the middle of verse 15, they will cause you to whore after their gods. They are not to make a covenant with these other people groups because these other people groups will lead them into sin. Not only that though, no, not, they can't make a covenant. God says in verse uh, 13, they have to tear down their objects of worship, their idols. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. No idols. And then verse 14. Reminder of the first commandment. You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. We get more of God's name. Our jealous God whose name is jealous does not want His people worshiping other gods. This is a holy, good, right, and righteous jealousy. Not like the jealousy we think of Funny side note, apparently a pastor was preaching on this text when Oprah Winfrey lost her faith. She was born in the church, and when she heard that, she said, God's jealous? How pathetic, how puny, how wimpy. I can't worship that God. What a small view of God. This could even make sense for husbands and wives. We are rightly jealous for that relationship. I do not want any man to treat Audrey the way that only I am allowed to treat her. I am jealous for my wife. God is jealous for His people. He wants the best for us. We cannot and should not worship another god. Or have any idols. He reminds us of the second commandment in verse 17. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. God gives us some don'ts. He's creating a people to be set apart. And then He gives us some do's. Again, verses 18-26. through 30,000 foot view. God is creating a culture. That's what I think God is doing with all these commands. He's giving commands, traditions, social structures, and norms that are different from other people groups. If these laws meant nothing else but obedience to God, they would still be good and right. Now, they mean more. They, they point to things. We know what the Passover pointed to, there's meaning behind it all. But all I'm saying is if all it meant was obedience, that would be good and right. Because God is creating a culture where the people obey Him. I have a funny illustration. You're going you're gonna to get to see some of my goofiness. Say there's a culture that decides to eat mangoes on the third Friday of every month in the summer. And yeah, amen. Mangoes are great. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. And we go to, to these people and say, why do you eat mangoes on the third Friday of every month in the summer? And they say, well, because 200 years ago, Grandpappy Papio decided, because he was a mango farmer, that that was a good thing, that we should eat mangoes on the third Friday of every month. And it's like, okay, cool. I'm not hating on Grandpappy Papio or mangoes. I love mangoes. But it's just the culture they have comes from this weird guy who was a mango farmer. One of the non-negotiables of the people of God is obedience to God. I'm not saying we shouldn't have our own family traditions, but the trademark, the thing that goes above and below and all within these people and us is obedience to our great and glorious God. We obey the, the King of the universe. The purpose of God in setting His people apart is to glorify His name in them and through them. Obedience to God glorifies him. So, for us as Christians, we know that the ceremonial and the sacrificial laws, even the moral law, have been perfectly fulfilled in Christ. The moral law still applies, not as a means to righteousness, but as a reflection of God's character. You heard Aaron preach on this a few weeks ago, Exodus 20. We have been given the righteousness of Christ and therefore we have the Holy Spirit in us and therefore we are enabled and empowered to obey the Ten Commandments, but we don't have to do the sacrificial and the ceremonial laws anymore. But we, as Christians, are still to be set apart. As the New Testament says, we are in the world and not of the world. As Christians, what sets us apart is simply love for God and love for neighbor. We are to be a holy people with a holy love. So many of us wrongly think that holiness is opposed to evangelism. Don't be too holy around your non-Christian friends. Don't, don't preach at them. Don't, don't pray. Don't talk about the Bible because your holiness is a barrier to evangelism. That is not what the Bible teaches. Our holiness is essential to evangelism. God uses our lives together to bear witness to His goodness and His grace and how joyful it is to obey Him. In In the two and a half years of being at the crossing, I've seen this in you guys. I want to encourage you and thank you and challenge you to keep it up. I have seen a people who are living out their identity as a set-apart people for the glory of God. Audrey and I came here as Christians. I admit that. I acknowledge that. But this group of people has done nothing for us but to cause us to love our King Jesus even more. The way you are set apart. The way you treat us and the way you treat each other. We've seen this in our life group. I know you guys have seen this in your own life groups. God has and He will be glorified in and through the Crossing Church. And I am very thankful and I love this body. And I'm emotional because I'm emotional. But also, uh, my internship's going to be over in December. And I'm going to be gone. I'm going to get a job somewhere in the network. I'll be maybe planting a church. I'm still kind of open-handed. But as of now, unless God does something amazing, I only have seven more months with you guys. And that's bittersweet. And I love you guys. And keep it up. I came prepared. Third point. Gonna have to go fast. God reveals his glory in the new covenant, verses 29 through 35. Moses comes down the mountain and he has a shiny, shiny, shiny face. And everyone's scared of him. And I just picture him going, like, do I have something in my teeth? I haven't eaten in 40 days. What's wrong? And they're afraid. His face is so shiny, they're terrified of him. Moses has seen and heard the glory of God. And it's reflected in his face. Everyone's afraid. I'm going to ask you to do something even though it's impossible. Imagine the glory of God. The real glory of God. His face, as it were, that someday we're going to see with a glorified body that won't explode upon seeing it. Imagine the glory of God if even the reflection of His glory in Moses' face was terrifying. I can't wait. Neither can you. That is what our hearts long for to see our King in all His glory. Come, Lord Jesus. So apparently, Moses has to calm everyone down, and then he tells the people everything the Lord commanded. He he tells Aaron and the, the leaders, come here, it's okay. And then he tells the people, he tells Israel everything he commands. But then listen to verse 33. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. The first 20 times I read that, I read it wrong. I thought because they were afraid of His shiny face, He put the veil over and then He would go speak to them. The text says He would speak to them and then put a veil over His face. And that became the new norm. 34 and 35. say Whenever He goes up, He would remove the veil until He came out. He would come out, tell the people of Israel what He was commanded. The people would see that His face was shiny and then Moses would put the veil over his face. So, what does that mean? Luckily for us, hopefully in a punctual manner, we can get through it because there's an amazing truth. The meaning lies behind this, and it is in Second Corinthians chapter three. I would encourage you, if you if you like to follow along and look along, to turn there in your Bibles. I'm breaking maybe I'm breaking a rule of preaching. I have a long cross reference. Because Paul is going to tell us how to interpret this, that way the intern doesn't have to do all this study, which would have been okay and fine and good, but the inspired Apostle Paul is going to tell us what this all means. So I'm going to read 11 verses. 2 Corinthians 3, we'll start in verse 6, we'll read through 17. He says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end." beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That is so rich. I hope you guys at the Crossing Church someday will preach through Second Corinthians and the pastors can plumb the depths of that passage. We don't have time this morning. We have to sprint through it. I'm not going to do an entirely new exposition. Just want to give us a few principles and truths. We have to understand Exodus 34 in light of the Gospel. Moses veiled his face to be an object lesson, as it were. A living, breathing parable to show that the Old Covenant was passing away. He veiled His face. It seems like, based on the readings of these two passages, He veiled His face because the shininess of His face was fading away. It was a fading glory. Not that the glory of God was fading, but the glory of the Old Covenant was fading. He's a living parable. Paul says so much about the Old and New Covenant. I'm going to rip them off fast. We're not going to dive deep into any of them. About the Old Covenant, listen to what Paul says. It kills, verse 6. It was a ministry of death, verse 7. A ministry of condemnation, verse 9. It has come to have no glory at all, verse 10. It has been brought to an end, verse 11. It came with fear, or at least it came with a lack of boldness, verses 12 and 13. And even though that's what it did, it came with glory. Again, the amazing shining face of Moses. People were so afraid of it. It begs the question briefly, well, is the law bad? No. Read Romans 7. The law is not bad. We're sinners. The law is good. God gave it, but He gave it to a sinful people with a sinful nature. The law says don't covet. And what do we do? We covet. It's our fault. It's not God's fault. The law is good and glorious. If the Old Covenant came with such a glory that the people were afraid to look at Moses' face, the New Covenant comes with an incomparable glory. Paul says of the New Covenant, it gives life, verse 6. It is the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of righteousness that far exceeds the old covenant, verse 9. It is permanent, verse 11. It comes with boldness, verse 12. It is Christ centered, verse 14. It brings freedom, verse 17. It allows us, listen, it allows us to behold the glory of the Lord, verse 18. It transforms us from one degree of glory. To another. Verse 18. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, it is better because it is mediated by the God-man, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a better mediator in the new covenant. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ purchased the new and glorious covenant for an undeserving people. Us. Do you guys feel deserving of this God? I don't. But that's what the gospel's all about. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But He loves us despite our sin. He loved His people despite their sin. The Christian life. So much of the Christian life I've been learning again at this church, being around you guys, being with our pastors, is this idea that the Gospel wasn't just something you believed a long time ago to get saved. You need to believe the Gospel today. Christians, this morning I'm calling you to believe the Gospel. If you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm calling you to believe the Gospel. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Call out to Him. Tell Him, Lord, I know I'm stiff-necked please pardon my iniquity and transgression and sin. For us as Christians, it's a fight every day to believe by faith and humility and worship the fact that God does love us. He will finish what He started in us despite our sin. Some of us even here this morning, even here this morning, are coming off of a night of a golden calf experience. And God offers mercy and grace, call out to Him in repentance and belief. Despite your sin, He will show Himself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is worthy of our praise. That's the application this morning. God is worthy of our praise because despite our sin, He's revealed His glory to us. In His name and through His Word, in and through His covenant people and in the New Covenant, mediated by His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise His holy name. Let's pray. God, we love You. We are in awe of who You are. That despite our sin, Lord, despite our sin, You have made known to us Your name. We've seen Your glory in Your name. We trust, Lord, that You will be glorified in our hearts and through us, Lord. Use the Crossing Church for Your glory. Give us boldness in mission. The New Covenant gives us that boldness. We praise You for Jesus Christ, Lord. You have shown Your glory to us in Christ. We love You. We praise You for who You are, for what You've done. Help us worship you the rest of the day and everything we do, say, think, and feel. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.